The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you now. Lord Jesus, you are the reason that we are. And you are the reason that we are here. Holy Spirit, would you please fill this place and fill this people. Father, Son, Spirit, you are one God together without beginning or end, and we worship you. Would you grant power now, power for speaking, power for hearing, and especially power that perhaps if there are some listening who do not know you and love you yet, that they would see today why they should. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. I want to start right out of the gate this morning with a question for the kids. If the grown-ups are curious and want to listen in, that's okay too. Okay, kids, do you guys like stories? I really like stories. Sometimes stories have a bad guy. Not always, but sometimes. Can you think of any stories you love that have a bad guy in them? Some stories don't have bad guys, and those are all right, those are okay. But have you ever noticed the best stories usually have a bad guy? And have you ever noticed that in the best of the best stories, for a little while, the bad guy seems to be winning? The biggest and the best story of all time is the story of real life. That's the story that you're in right now. Real life is the story of how God, who is real, sent a serpent-slaying hero, that's Jesus, to defeat the most ancient evil snake who ever lived. And he did that in order to rescue a whole kingdom of the evil snakes, serpents, and prisoners, that's us, to be happy with him forever. That is not a made-up story. That story is real. This biggest and best story of all time has a bad guy in it. And even if it seems for a little while like this bad guy is winning, he's not going to win. Jesus is going to win. In fact, he already won back when he died on the cross for his people and rose again from the dead. When we know that, and don't just know it but believe it, and don't just believe it but love it, then we win too, just like Jesus does. So this week, we're studying Acts chapter 12. Acts 12 is like a mini-story of the biggest story. In Acts 12, we see a bad guy. We met him last week, actually. His name is Herod. Herod thinks he's very special. And for a little while, he gets to do what he wants, and it seems like he's going to get away with it. But guess what? We already know how the biggest story ends. The serpent doesn't beat Jesus. Jesus beats the serpent. So we already have a clue from that big story for how this little story is going to end too. Today we're going to read this story together, and we're going to learn what it can teach us about real life. This story isn't just for grown-ups. It's for kids too. Okay. That was all for the kids. Grown-ups, if you checked out, you can start listening again. 
Let's talk about where we're headed this morning. Today, we're going to do a part two of Dave's sermon last week. That means that this part has the same big idea that Dave's did, and that is the critical importance of prayer. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's our takeaway right up front. South family, we are God's people, and God's people in every time and every place need to pray. But there's something that I love about this text, and that is it doesn't just tell us that we need to pray. It helps us actually go live that way. How does it do that? It does that by giving us some very important and very true truth. Truth gives us something solid to stand on when we go obey. Specifically in this passage, there's three things that we see. God himself is powerful. Second, we see the example of God's people for us to emulate. And third, we see a counterexample that shows us what we start to look like when we don't pray like we should. So that's where we're going. How are we going to get there? First things first, Acts 12 is just a great story. So we're going to spend some time enjoying this story as a story. After that, uh, there's some interesting details about this story that we might miss the first time through. So we're going to make some observations about how this story works and what Luke, the author, is telling us. Then with those observations helping us, we're going to lay out three arguments, or you might call them applications, that this passage, I think, gives us for why and in what way we need to pray. So to get us rolling, let's look back at Acts 12 together. I really encourage you to keep your own Bible open as we're going through. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Don't feel bad. If you want one, and if you would be comfortable, please come talk to me after the service or to Dave or to any of our elders, and we will get you one. It's that important that you have a Bible, and we love you. So Acts 12 is a story with three big pieces, part one, part two, and part three, plus a little bit of introduction at the beginning and some conclusion at the end. And all those pieces work together. So to get the full picture of the story, we shouldn't start partway through. We're going to start back up at the top of the chapter. Let's quickly recap what Dave showed us last week, starting in verse 1. So in verse 1, we meet Herod the king, who lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Kids, are you still listening? This is the bad guy we were talking about. This, is, this Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great, Herod the Great is the one who talked to the wise men and who ordered all the young boys in Bethlehem to be killed when Jesus was little. So in verse 2, we learn that Herod martyred James, who's the brother of John. And in verse 3, that made the Jewish leaders happy, which is really sad. So verses 3 through 5, he puts Peter in prison under four squads of soldiers. So adding grief onto hardship, Peter isn't just in prison, probably about to be killed, He's also grieving. James was probably closer than a brother to Peter, since Peter and James and John were especially close both to Jesus and to one another. But there is a silver lining. We see, if you look at verse 5, Peter was not alone. God's people were, er, were earnestly praying for him. So that's a really good thing. Then, as Dave walked us through last week, we learn about this last-minute angelic rescue mission. Look at verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so it was down to the last possible minute. But does anything sneak up on God? 
No, his timing is perfect. He knows exactly what he's doing. The angel of the Lord appears to Peter in verse 7, and the chains fall off of his hands, and they walk out of prison like it's nothing. And Peter watches this heavy iron gate swing open all by itself, and he thinks this is too good to be true, and he must be seeing a vision. But then the angel disappears, and Peter comes to himself, and he says, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is where we started our sermon reading for today. So in the flow of this passage, that was the introduction and part one. So Herod causes problems, and Peter gets put in prison, and then God sends an angel to rescue him. Part two starts in verse 12. That's where Peter realizes he's actually free and not having a dream. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. So God's people are doing exactly what God's people should do. They're praying prison break prayers, like Dave told us last week. Even if, as we're going to see in a moment, they weren't completely sure whether God was going to answer or if he was going to answer how. The servant girl Rhoda comes to the door in verse 13. She is so surprised and happy to hear Peter's voice. It says in 14, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing there. But the believers, it seems, are not in a very believing mood because when she tells them what she heard, they call her crazy. You're out of your mind. This is verse 15. But she insists. And then they say this really weird thing. It's his angel. What does that mean? One thing that we know about the culture at this time, they had a very high regard for angels. Angels were considered super special. And there was a superstition back then, or we might call it an urban legend today, that when someone died, their guardian angel would sometimes appear to someone else as kind of a sign of what had happened. As far as I can tell, this is not based on scripture. The Bible does not say that this will happen. It's a tradition that some of the Jewish believers had at this time. The point is, very sadly, the believers think that Peter is dead. But Rhoda We don't know how old Rhoda was, but in context, it seems like she might have been younger. She knows what she heard, and she insists. Kids, this is encouraging for you. When you know the truth, you can insist on it. In this story, God's people do the right thing when they listen to Rhoda and go check the door to see if Peter's there, because guess what? He is. But here's the key. Rhoda wasn't making anything up, and she wasn't lying. She was telling the truth, and that's what you should do too, even if other people don't believe you at first. A really good example of this is you can always tell other people that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. Actually, grown-ups a lot of the time can also use encouragement to tell that truth to people, no matter who might say you're out of your mind. But back to the story. When they finally do go look, surprise, it's Peter. There is an emotional roller coaster for you. One second they think he's dead, and the second he's standing in front of them alive. Does that remind you of any other stories you've heard in the Bible before? Peter explains what happened with the angel. This is verse 17 now, if you're following along. And he says, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. But wait a second. Didn't James get martyred by Herod in verse 2? Yes, that's a different James. So that James was the brother of John. James and John were the two brothers that Jesus called the sons of thunder. 
This James is Jesus' brother who believed in Jesus after the resurrection, and he became a leader in the church. He's the one that wrote the book of James that's in your Bible right now. All of these people are real. They're so real, I'm excited to meet them someday. They are as real as you are. So next, Peter leaves to go somewhere safer, probably because he knows Herod is going to come looking for him. And in verses 18 and 19, that's exactly what happens. I think this next part is, again, meant to be a little bit funny, or at least kind of satisfying. Morning comes, and the soldiers discover, surprise, your prisoner is gone. And the text says there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. I'm pretty sure that is an understatement. But then, this next part is not so funny, I don't think. Herod comes looking for Peter, presumably to, you know, kill him. And he can't find him because he's not there. So Herod examines the sentries, and they don't know where he is either. So what does Herod do? Herod orders that the guards be put to death. Kids, you remember at the beginning we were talking about bad guys. I think this verse is here to remind us that Herod is a bad guy. In one sense, he's just following the normal rules of Roman soldiers. If you lose your prisoner, you take his place, right? Business as usual, nothing personal. But it's not like Peter was actually guilty of anything. He wasn't convicted. The only reason that a death sentence was on the table to begin with is that Herod was using this to get points with the Jewish leaders. And when he can't have what he wants, which is to kill Peter, he turns one murder into four, at least. This is the biggest clue, by the way, of what Herod and the Jews actually wanted to do with Peter. If the plan had been to beat him up and let him go, like we've seen elsewhere in Acts, that's probably all the soldiers would have gotten. But instead, the soldiers' punishment for losing Peter was to die themselves. Herod has them killed because just like the other Herods in the Bible, whether it's his grandfather Herod who ordered the death of the young boys, or it's his uncle Herod who beheaded John the Baptist in prison— this Herod also thinks that he has the power of life and death. So that's how part two ends. Peter meets God's praying people, and Herod executes the prison guards. But let's read the last few verses of our story and figure out what happens to Herod the king. Part three starts again with some background. Herod was in a dispute with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is verse 20. And again, it seems like he wasn't getting something that he wanted. So to get what he wants, he's again leveraging death as a consequence. It says at the end of verse 20, their country depended on the king's country for food. So Herod is letting a bunch of innocent people go hungry and maybe even starve because his political opponents made him mad. Um, so the people come with one accord and they persuade Blastus to let them talk to the king. Persuade is probably a nice word for bribe. And they ask Herod for peace. So Herod puts on these royal robes so that he looks really especially impressive. And he gives a big impressive speech. And the people kind of know what their job is at this point, which is to make him feel important so that he'll stop, you know, cutting off the food for their friends and family. And so they start calling him a god, which is pretty weird. Herod was a very prideful man. When the people start calling him a god, he doesn't even stop them. He set this whole thing up to get what he wants, which is for the people to give glory to him and not to God. But does God share his glory? Absolutely not. Isaiah 42, God says, I am Yahweh. 
That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So Herod isn't carved out of wood, but he's definitely set himself up to be worshipped, which means he's making himself an idol. And the people go for it, even if it's just flattery, because they need him to get what they want. They say in verse 22, the voice of a god and not of a man. That's not true, though, is it, kids? That's a lie. God the Father is God, and Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. That's it. Nobody else. It doesn't take God very long to deal with this situation. Look what it says. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, Since we are God's people, there's at least two feelings that we ought to have about this end of the story. One of them is sadness. So Herod was a person just like us, and it's always sad when a human being goes to their death rather than surrendering to God. That's tragic. But the other feeling is a sort of grim satisfaction at God's justice. Herod was God's enemy, and we are God's friends. It's a good thing when we see God carry out his justice against his enemies. In fact, we sing his praises for that. In one way, the end of the story makes God's people very happy, because in the end, evil doesn't win. So now we have our conclusion. It's short and sweet. In contrast to Herod, who just very abruptly decreased and fell apart, the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the tie back into the big story of Acts, which is the story of King Jesus, through his spirit, building his church. You can't stop the gospel, not when Jesus is king. The last verse in this chapter then sets us up for the next couple of chapters because it introduces the main characters of the next part of Acts' story. Barnabas and Saul, who we already know, have been serving in Jerusalem, and John, whose other name was Mark, comes back from there with them. We've had a number of angels in this chapter. Did you notice? These three men are going to be the angels of God in Acts 13 and 14 and on. Remember, angel just means messenger. So these men, Barnabas and Saul and John, whose other name was Mark, were the messengers of God. Every Christian in this room ought to be that kind of angel. So this is a great story. It's got drama. It's got intrigue. We laughed. We cried. At the end, Jesus beats the bad guy, and God's word keeps going just like he promised. So how do we get from a story like this one to lessons that we can apply to us? It's not very useful to say, if you're ever in prison and an angel shows up to break you out, go ahead and put your sandals on and follow him like Peter did. We live in a very different time and place from the people in this account. So what we need to do is this. We need to make observations about what this story says and how the writer, that's Luke, puts it together for us. And then we can take those observations and build a bridge between that and us today. So observation number one, this story is all about life and death. Remember, we looked at this chapter in three parts. Part one, Peter is rescued from prison where Herod was going to kill him. In a sense, Peter is brought back to life. It's like his prison is a tomb and God brings him out in a picture of resurrection. And in part three, Herod, who thinks he has all the power and all the praise from all the people, God sentences to death by worm. Life in part one, 
death in part three. And what's right in the middle? God's people are gathered together praying. So this sends the message, if we're listening for it, the prayers of God's people are a matter of life and death. It's really that important. Observation number two. Herod is acting like a devouring dragon. Herod thinks he's a king, and in an earthly sense he is, but Herod is really just a servant, just like all human beings are. Herod is a servant of Satan. He is a snake servant. And because of that, Herod acts like Satan does. How do we know that Herod serves Satan when the text doesn't actually spell that out? There's two reasons. First, just like Satan, Herod is God's enemy and he hurts God's people. All of God's enemies serve Satan, whether they know it or not. Jesus says in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Herod kills James and he imprisons Peter. That is not gathering with Jesus. And that means that he is a servant of the snake instead. But second, Herod focuses on getting what Herod wants. That's exactly what snake servants always do. Satan is a very tricky slave master. He says to his followers, oh, me? You don't have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to anyone. Listen to yourself. Do whatever you want. But there's a big problem with that. When we do what we want, or whatever we think we want, that's just fine for Satan. Whatever we do, as long as we don't do what God wants, that's all he's interested in. So, Herod is a snake servant. If you read the whole Bible and take careful notes, you'll notice that Satan and his servants all through the Bible have two strategies that they switch back and forth between. First is the sneaky serpent strategy. That's where they lie and they trick and they question God's words. That's what the serpent in the garden at the very beginning of the Bible was doing. The second strategy is a devouring dragon strategy where they attack and they destroy and they break and burn and devour, which means to eat something which is what the dragon at the very end of the Bible tries to do, but it doesn't work. So both kinds of snake servant are here in this story. Did you notice? Herod is the devouring dragon. He kills James, and he wants to kill Peter, and he executes the soldiers, and he withholds food from Tyre and Sidon. And two different groups of people, first the Jewish leaders at the beginning of the chapter, and then the people from Tyre and Sidon at the end of the chapter, are being sneaky serpents. The Jewish leaders stay in the background, and they pretend that they're not involved, but secretly they're egging Herod on to go ahead and hurt God's people. And the people of Tyre and Sidon bribe and lie and flatter in order to get what they want. That's sneaky serpent tactics. Everyone in this story who doesn't serve God is trying to get what they want, and that's making them actually do what Satan wants. Third observation. The one thing that God's people do in this story, which is a story that turns out right in the end, is pray. What could be more different than either the sneaky serpent or the devouring dragon than to get on your knees and pray to God and plead with him to do what's right? None of God's people in this story turn to violence or to manipulation or to bribery. Remember, this is a story about Peter. Peter is the one back in the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was betrayed, he pulled out his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. But we don't see that from him here or from any of God's people. 
What God's people do is what God's people should do, which is pray. Okay, so using those observations, let's apply this story to us today. First application, God answers prayer. And on top of that, he likes to answer prayers in ways that we don't expect. So when you pray, pray watchfully. How would it feel if someone came to you and said, you are the only one that can help me with my problem. Would you please, please help me? And you say, yes, I'll help you. And before those words are even out of your mouth, they've turned around and they've gone away because they've got so much faith in you that you're going to fix their problem. That wouldn't feel very good. Let's not treat God that way when we pray. We, that, this, by the way, makes prayer really exciting. What is God going to do? How is he going to do it? We need to be watchful when we pray earnestly like the people in Acts 12 did because God likes to answer prayer in unexpected ways. Second application, prayerfulness and prayerlessness identify us and change us. When we pray, we resemble God's people. And when we don't pray, we resemble Herod. Therefore, Christians pray consistently. Prayer is like a mark on God's people that shows who they belong to. It's part of who we are. When someone is a Christian, something changes in their heart. And you can't see someone's heart, but you can see what changes in what they do. When someone gathers together to pray with God's people, it shows that they belong to God's people. Unfortunately, we sometimes act like prayer is a good thing, but not praying is kind of only a little bit bad, right? We know that prayer is good for us, but not praying we treat as neutral. But here's a chilling thought for you. I hope it gives you goosebumps, in fact. When we fail to pray, we slowly start to act like sneaky serpents or devouring dragons or both. Think about this for a second. Just because you don't bring what you need to God and ask him for it doesn't mean you stop needing that. When you don't bring what you need to God, the burden of meeting that need stays on you. And what do we start to do about it? We start to use our own strength and our own means to get what we need or want, just like the serpents of the snake do. Eventually, prayerlessness puts us in a position to hurt other people, just like we see Herod doing. Therefore, people of God, prayer is not optional. Praying together often is who we are in Jesus. That's one of the biggest tools he's given us to fight this fight of faith. And when you don't live that way, you're still picking a side. So are you a Christian? If so, then you need to pray. Finally, application number three. This is an encouragement to us that we should press into prayer earnestly and joyfully and reverently. God, your God, South Campus, has in his hands the power of life and the power of death. Why did God end Herod with a worm? In verse 23, it says it's because he did not give God the glory. The prayer of God's people gives God glory to God. It declares for us and for the whole world that's watching who really controls storms and tornadoes and car accidents and cancer and elections and job promotions. 
There's lots of things in the universe that God does that nobody sees. When God's people are praying and praying watchfully, like we're made to do, that puts a spotlight on the things that God's doing that we were specifically asking for and looking for the answers to come. South family, your God is powerful. He controls life and he controls death. He saves Peter and he silences Herod. No one else has the power that he has. In our story, Herod tries to take some of that power. He pretends that he's a god, and he tries to control the life and death of other people for his own glory. But in the end, he is powerless before God to keep his own life from being eaten by worms. And you and I have no more control over our lives than Herod had. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? We can't make even one hair on our heads white or black. God controls your life, and he alone can decree the day of your death. That should make us shiver. Only this is the good news of the gospel. Death has no sting for you if you are in Jesus. The grave could not hold him. And if you believe in him to save you, then the grave will not hold you either. This is God's promise to everyone who loves him and who's called according to his purpose. All things, whether it's life or death, whether it's tribulation or distress, whether it's persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all things will work together for your good. Because God has eternally promised favor to his son. When you believe in Jesus and are counted as part of his bride, the church, that promise of favor applies to you. You can run in prayer to God who has your life in his hands to do with as he pleases and know that you will find safety there. No one can stop God from doing exactly what he wants to with you. So pray to him earnestly and joyfully and reverently. South family, we are God's people, and God's people in every time and every place must pray to God. Before we close, there's one last thing that I need to say, and it's for anyone who's listening right now who maybe doesn't believe in Jesus as their only Lord and Savior. First of all, I'm really, really glad that you're listening. I have been thinking about you and praying for you all week. And second, I hope that as we've gone through this text, it's started to make you uncomfortable. This text has a lot to say about life and death. And that's an uncomfortable topic, but it's not a topic that mortals like us can just ignore. If you are not trusting in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, then none of the promises that I just talked about, about God's favor, apply to you yet. You are still in God's hands, and he can still do with you whatever he pleases. No one can stop God from doing with you exactly what he wants to. And that might be terrifying, or because God is good, It might be the only thing that saves you from the eternal consequences of your sin. So hear me real quick. There are exactly three kinds of people in the whole world right now. 
There are those who are spiritually dead and are going to stay that way, who never will surrender to Jesus and trust in him for eternal life. There are those who are already eternally alive and who will never, ever die. And there are those who are still spiritually dead in their sin, but are only asleep. These ones God will surely wake up and draw to himself before it's too late. If you can still hear my voice today and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, I pray that you are in the third kind, the ones who are only asleep and not the first one, the ones who will never believe. But the only way to be sure is for you to wake up and believe in Jesus and instantly at that moment you will be alive forever. You don't have to be perfect to be saved. God knows none of us who believe in Jesus are perfect. And you don't have to earn your salvation or try to pay God back. That's really good news because no one could ever do that anyway. But what you must do is confess your sin to God and believe that Jesus paid your price in your place. And if you do, you will be saved. Let today be the day that you do that. You can't guarantee that tomorrow will give you another chance. If you aren't believing in Jesus, you have a massive problem. And that is, your sin is like a prison holding you in, like Peter was in, awaiting his impending death. So let me plead with you, if you don't know Jesus yet, please be like Peter today, not like Herod. Wake up. Walk out of your prison of sin and death. There is an iron gate that used to hold you in, and Jesus died and rose again to open it. Hell will have enough snakes and dragons in it without you being one of them. There is a way in front of you today that will carry you out of death and into life, and that way is a person, and that person has a name. His name is Jesus. For those of you who do know and love Jesus, it is so, so good that you're here. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute to commemorate that sacrifice for us and to celebrate this new identity that he's given us together as a blood-bought family. But before we do that, let's do what we've been talking about and pray. Almighty Father, you alone can kill and make alive. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Would you make this people your temple? Fill them up by your spirit with your presence, like the train of your robe filled Solomon's temple in the year that King Uzziah died. Messiah Jesus, you alone can crush the serpent's head and lead the captives free. We are your gathered people, and we love you. Thank you for rescuing your bride, your church. Holy Spirit, would you be pleased, even at this moment, to continue adding to her ranks? Maybe some today, maybe some this week, maybe some right this moment. Father, Would you bless the words of this text, your holy scripture, to remain in our minds and our hearts this week, to spur us to pray to you? And would you bless the elements that we come to now? 
Use them as a means of grace to keep your people until the end. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.